Hello, and welcome to the Green Minds podcast. Showcasing the science, stories and solutions behind climate change with Phoebe Scott, Alex Miller, Lottie Flashness and Guy Wilkinson. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the IB Green Minds podcast, which is being supported by PAI Partners. So I'm delighted to be joined by two guests from CDP, Radhika Marotra and Jerome Tarasca, who both work in the Investor Engagement Division of the company. So welcome to you both and thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, Alex. It's nice to be here. It's great to have you both on. And thought to give an introduction to listeners, please could you just tell us a bit about yourselves and your career paths to date? I'm sure, happy to. So again, um, you know, Radhika Mehrotra and um, I'm the Investor Engagement Manager for CDP's Capital Markets team in North America. Um, as the title indicates, I work with our capital market stakeholders, so asset managers, asset owners, banks, insurance companies um, in the U.S. and Canada to support their sustainability journey, mainly by incorporating CDP's standard global data sets on environmental impact of businesses. In terms of my career path, so I come from a multidisciplinary background, studied economics, political science, uh, literature, and I think this um, this really influenced my choice of career. I started, you know, my first job was as a research analyst with an economic think tank in India, where I uh, worked on and then eventually led products that analyzed macroeconomic data, um, investment trends, capex trends against uh, land and labor policies. So for me, this overlay of extra financial inputs was always fascinating uh, and almost a differentiating factor uh, between leaders and laggards. I had the opportunity to really explore this understanding as an ESG analyst for a boutique investment advisory firm where I led ESG due diligence on emerging market portfolios. Um, So a lot of experience with reported data and the lack thereof. A couple of years back, I moved to the US for personal reasons and found my way to CDP where I continue to engage with um, institutional investors on data and analytical solutions um, on integrating these environmental impacts. I will pass it on to Jerome. Yeah, and on my side, so I've uh, I've studied uh, initially. I've studied engineering, and then I I moved into finance. I studied in Paris there, where I did my masters. It was in the midst of the financial crisis, so I was really interested to understand how financial markets work and why it was deficient. I finished my studies in Melbourne in Australia, and and then I started my career in Hong Kong, where I worked for a financial research provider, which was very useful to understand the financial markets as a whole. I got to understand the different actors in financial markets, what their goals are and how they work, whether they are brokers, traders, and, you know, corporate investment bankers. Um, so that was very interesting, but I, I was missing the responsible part. I, I, and, and I started to basically learn by myself more about responsible investment. And um, in 2016, I uh, got back to Europe to start a startup that is um, a responsible event marketplace in Paris. And then for personal reasons, I moved to Berlin. I worked for another startup that I had launched in, in uh, France and in the U.S., 
And that's where I wanted to get back to financial markets. And that's uh, when I met CDP. So I've joined CDP in October 2019. And as uh, Radhika said, I'm working as well on the capital markets team of CDP. Um, and I'm focusing primarily on, on the French, Belgian, Luxembourg and Dutch market. Great. Thank you very much. Sounds like you both have very interesting backgrounds. It's quite interesting to sort of hear how you've both had uh, some international exposure in terms of moving around the world, which is really exciting. Um, moving on to the next question, could I just ask one of you to briefly outline what CDP is, who reports to it, and who uses this information, and then um, use this as context to describe where each of your roles fits within the organization? I'm sure. So as an overview, CDP is an environmental nonprofit. You know, we were founded with the ambition to transform capital markets by making climate change reporting and risk management a, a business norm. Uh, and you know, our core theory that really drives us is that what gets measured gets managed. So how do we how do we do this? How is this implemented? So um, two decades ago, our founders had the vision that there is an information asymmetry in the market, and capital markets simply do not have the data. On, their, on the climate change impacts to and off their investments, which limits them from making uh, an informed decision. So to remedy this, CDP launched the concept of environmental disclosure through a standardized set of metrics that companies um, are invited to report against annually. In 2002, when, when we began, um, and I've heard this, uh, we, have, we had 35 investors um, who endorsed CDP's mission and around 245 companies that reported to uh, what I believe was a set of three questions that were faxed out, you know, that were sent by fax to, to these companies. We've come a long way. You know, in 2021, we have now nearly 600 capital market stakeholders who work with us, who endorse our mission. And in 2020, we had more than 9,500 companies that reported to our platform and reported to these standard metrics. Our thematic focus has also expanded. So from you know, climate change and being the carbon disclosure project, we also expanded to soft commodity linked deforestation uh, and water security uh, over the last decade. And then in addition to companies now, national and subnational governments also report through CDP. So th this process really has resulted in the world's largest data sets on corporate and um, national, subnational governments, voluntary disclosures, which for the capital markets meets this growing need for credible, comprehensive, and comparable data that can inform their investment decisions and really support ESG integration efforts. So Jerome and I really work with these capital market stakeholders, um, again, you know, to support, support their data needs, to support sort of their corporate engagement needs, to support needs on peer collaboration, um, and, and all of these really, you know, at the heart of it, use our standardized data to ensure mainstreaming of each of these activities. So I, I'll stop there. If uh, there's anything that Jerome you'd like to add to this. I think that's a very good uh, picture of CDP. <laughs> and I would say as well that maybe in the future, we, so we, we intend to extend our coverage of themes to, to the broader environment. So there are still some... Mm -hmm. Some areas where we're not so present, like I'm thinking, for example, ocean or biodiversity, where we have very limited data um, and, and we want to, to get deeper into those aspects as well. Thank you. 
definitely hear what you're saying and particularly about the oceans during our course we've been digging into things like climate change and the importance of uh, afforestation and land use but quite often when it comes to the question about oceans there's actually relatively little especially given how big a portion of the world is covered by oceans so that, that's fascinating and you, you mentioned there really good that the, the three components um, of CDP's global environmental disclosure system I thought we could dig into the climate aspect first and there's a great statistic at the end of 2020 that the number of companies announcing net zero targets doubled in 2020 compared to 2019. How important is it that these are science-based targets uh, when we think about the need to decarbonize our economy? Yes. Um, so first of all, I think GDP as a whole is very uh, interested and, and very happy to see an increase of net zero commitments. So in all theory of change, we need more companies to make public commitments because eventually it leads companies to actually reduce their emissions in line with their commitments. So it's very important that uh, companies take public commitments and that stakeholders can, can actually hold them accountable. And that's why we need science-based targets. So net zero target is a, a target that is to be achieved by 2050, right? When we say net zero, it's it's an objective that is in line with the Paris Agreement to, to have zero emission or to compensate the residual emission that we emit. And that is a goal that is, has to be achieved by 2050 in order to limit global warming by well below two degrees by the end of the century, and if possible, 1.5 degrees. So it's the target that, that is for the next 30 years, right? And where science-based targets have to play a role is to set actually interim targets. So a net zero target is for 2050. Science-based targets, as defined by the science-based target initiative, which is to my knowledge, the only, I would say, initiative that looks scientifically as a target setting. It's about setting a target that is between five and 15 years from now. And when we say a target, is it's a, an emission reduction objective, right? So it's like saying, okay, by uh, in 10 years, I wish to reduce my emission by that much. We need science-based targets because we need this interim medium-term plans from companies and not only a, a long-term uh, 30 years away objective that is very far away. We need actual plans that are that can be uh, transparent, that can be accessible publicly, that can facilitate the accountability of companies uh, so that everyone can say, okay, these are the targets that you have set for yourself. Are you actually achieving the reduction that you were planning? And it's important those targets are, are scientific so that they can be uh, in line with the available science as of today. Science is evolving and uh, we, need, uh, we need scientists to actually review these targets and validate them to make sure that the level of ambition that is communicated by the company is in line with what's expected of them in order to be in line with the Paris Accord. So accountability, transparency, science, these are the reasons why we need science-based targets. On the concept of net zero, the, the, and that's another reason why we need science-based target is because the concept of net zero is not yet fully defined. So for example, there, there is no consensus as just yet as uh, what is the role of offset 
to set a net zero target? Can you use just offsetting? Can you just uh, offset your whole emissions and not reduce them? Obviously, this is not the position of uh, neither CDP or the, the science-based target initiative that has actually uh, published public consultation in uh, January about the concept of net zero and trying to define what net zero actually means. And in uh, what we can already see is that obviously the, the offset should should play a very residual role uh, in the net zero target. And the net zero target should be composed of actual emission reduction. That is uh, really the core of it. So yeah, I hope that answers your question. (laughs) I I think that's great. And I think that's a very important part about offsets only being used for uh, the residual emissions, which is definitely something that we talked about in our carbon accounting lecture. And now one of the aspects of or nuances of the uh, calculation for a net zero is that if scope three emissions represent more than 40% of a company's overall emissions, then scope three emissions must be included in that target. And when we say scope three emissions, we're talking about the emissions across a company's entire value chain. How focused are investors and I guess companies as well on scope three emissions versus scope one and two? And are there any risks associated with the scope three in particular? Um, I can start with that. So um, there has been a definite increase in investor interest on scope three emissions. And I think this comes um, not only from a data availability perspective, but also from an academic perspective where our investors are seeking to better understand the nuances on reporting categories, the use of estimations, how best to interpret the scope three impact of their portfolios as a whole you know, where, where there is a very strong likelihood of double counting, et cetera. So from, from, you know, CDP's perspective, historically has always been that scope three is a very useful indicator for engagement for individual company journeys, particularly for the low carbon transition. However, in the last 12 to 18 months, um, the discussion has picked up slightly on a different tangent, I would say with scope three emissions or financed emissions for financial institutions becoming a focus area, right? So there are reporting requirements emerging in different parts of the world on financial institutions, their portfolio impacts, their scope three, their financed emissions, are primarily, of course, led, led by the recommendations of the DCFD, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, and then you know, the CDP as well. Uh, in 2020, for the first time, in line with the DCFD recommendations, we introduced sector-specific metrics for the financial companies that report to us, which had these metrics on portfolio impact, really trying to dig deeper into how well are these financial institutions not only measuring their portfolio exposures, uh, but also whether they're able to actually articulate the impact of their lending on, on the environmental themes. So backed by some evolving methodology guidance, you know, such as the PCAF, Principles on Carbon Accounting Financials, um, the Science-Based Targets Financial Institutions methodology. Um, we, we do expect more action and related commitments from FIs on this piece, which ultimately will trickle down uh, to their portfolio companies and investee companies to up the ante, of course, on the scope one and two piece, but potentially on scope three as well. Um, is there anything you want to add to that, Jerome? I would just say I would just add uh, that I think investors uh, realize that scope three is is of course very very important. Although at the beginning it was a bit difficult to get there, but um, 
there was for a long time this issue and this this uh, issue of, of double counting, and I think that investors also realized that from a risk perspective, when of course they can be double counting, but you actually have double risk in your portfolio, even if the emissions of of uh, well the scope three emissions of a company is also the scope two of, of an, or the scope one of another company, as an investor, you are exposed to both companies. So the double counting is not really an issue and, and um, we, need to, we need to better account for these, uh, these scope three emissions. And sometimes, I mean, they represent the vast majority of the emission for most of the companies. It can go from 10 times the, the scope one and two to 50 times sometimes. So it's, it's, a, it's a really important factor um, specifically from a risk analysis perspective. Thank you. Yeah, those, those are some really, really interesting insights there, which are great to reflect on. And now I just wanted to shift the focus to water and deforestation, which are the other two components of the methodology. How are investors using these reports to advise their investment decisions and strategies? And uh, if, if you had any specific examples to bring this to life, then that, that would be great. Sure. Um, I, I would say again that, you know, over the course of the last, I would say, more recently over the course of the last year or so, we're seeing that investors are starting to pay more attention um, to water security and deforestation themes were relevant, of course. Um, in the past, they were definitely siloed. And even amongst the investors we work with, uh, we could say that there were a handful of them who used these themes and sort of had a stronger leaning on engagement. But now, and I think, you know, Alex, you touched upon this with with sort of nature-based solutions, you know, you're looking at oceans as another solution for carbon sequestering, um, biodiversity, land use patterns, science-based targets for nature. You know, there are many exciting developments which are bringing to the fore that interconnectedness, you know, climate, water, and forest management as well. So from our perspective, we're seeing that, you know, our investors are starting to pay more attention to ultimately, you know, what they can start off with, which is having um, having some reported corporate data, which they could use to sort of, you know, create some initial benchmarks and start start this kind of integration. So, two key uses at this case would definitely be to amplify company assessments and evaluations, so like a more holistic environmental assessment, and then of course to guide effective engagement. Now, how are these? You know, some examples to point to these would be that we're working with some banks who want to incorporate, say, specific KPIs from the CDP disclosure, and this is on deforestation, on, on you know, very, very topical themes. So on certification, um, deforestation policies, supplier engagement, uh, and others into their client due diligence. So really having a very, a very standardized set of metrics that they can use across the board to evaluate their clients. So you know, coming back to the portfolio impact piece, uh, we also launched a pilot project last year, which presented a standardized framework for banks to start assessing deforestation exposure in their portfolios. So while this was, you know, an application, we only had a handful of, you know, banks that we invited to report against these metrics. I'm also happy to say that many of our investors across the globe really participated in engaging with these banks, which to me is indicative of how closely they are monitoring forest risks in, um, in their portfolios. And, you know, going forth, in, in this year, we're continuing to work more focused in a more focused manner in Latin America, um, in China, and we're already seeing our investors very keen to see the results, you know, not just of the output, but also how well banks uh, and financial institutions are responding to this kind of an opportunity. On the water side, I would say that CDP's water questionnaire 
again, uh, very much in line with the PCFT recommendations on governance, risk and opportunity strategy and metrics. But within that, two things to highlight would be uh, a very strong focus on core water accounting and really creating using our questionnaire and disclosure process to create that best practice where companies are actually accounting for their water use and their water outputs uh, in a very streamlined manner, which in turn is being also viewed as a strong indicator on physical risk exposure. Companies are also, you know, complementing that information with very sort of locational details on where they believe their businesses will face water risk. And on the data user side, on the investor side, we're seeing that leaders in this space are starting to use that geospatial mapping tools, water stress data sets, combined with these sort of, you know, corporate disclosures to really assess water risk. And again, hone in on that physical risk piece. And then also, of course, to spot leaders who are innovating on solutions, you know, whether it is things like water-free shampoos or reducing pollutants, et cetera. So I would say that it continues to remain on a slightly more company and then sector basis, but with this sort of growing push on disclosures and data, uh, we can definitely see the potential for more, I would say, um, data product related solutions as well emerging on these things. Yeah, and thanks Radhika. I think very good insights there from, from what uh, CDP and investors are doing. Um, I, I would just add on the product creation side of things that like we would like to see, we, we can still see today that it's on the water and deforestation. Um, we can see there are less financial products related to these uh, issues compared to climate. And of course, for example, if I take the example of water funds, I don't mean like funds that invest only in water utility companies. The approach of CDP is that there are very, very different sectors that are impacted by water stress or water pollution. So it can, it, it, not sectors that you would think are related to water, but they need water to function. And those sectors might be heavily hit if, uh, with the course of events, like uh, with climate, with global warming, the, the, the scarcity of water, and all, it will impact the operational uh, capabilities of companies. And at the end of the chain, also the uh, investors' uh, profitability. So we see today that, to my knowledge, for example, there is no water fund that are actually investing in companies that are better prepared or that are invested mainly in, in, uh, in companies that are uh, better prepared or, I would say, applying the best principles for a water-secure world and are preparing to those risks. And to that extent, actually, I'm, I'm saying that we are looking for partners, for, for asset managers, for, for investors that wish to create such a, a financial product, such a fund in partnership with CDP, where we could provide some insights and, and data on uh, the eligible universe. And of course, on forest as well. And to, to give an example, uh, Euronext has launched in 2019 uh, a series of indices that are actually taking into account the three themes so that they, they are called the Euronex uh, CDP environment indices. And so they take the three themes so that it not only tackles climate, but also water and deforestation. And so that's interesting. And they launched uh, earlier, I think this year, uh, a Euronex CDP water Eurozone, so focusing mainly on water. And we need more of this type of products that actually take uh, this information into consideration because the water issue, the deforestation issues, they are very important. Uh, there's a lot of population, a lot of social issues as well related to those risks. And, um, and we need more actions on that one. That's great. And 
it's, it's not just climate mitigation, but it's about sustainable economic development and water and forestry brings in a lot more of the UN's sustainable development goals, um, such as I don't know, keep clean water and sanitation and, and life on land. And uh, there's there's a lot more. So it's it, it's definitely good to focus on that those overarching themes. And I love the idea of the, the satellite data to monitor emissions um, and understand risks. And I think when when the financial institutions start creating indices, then that's really going to help reduce the cost of capital of those companies who are actually taking action. And so now I just wanted to move on to, I think we've, we, we have moved into this area talking about data and how investors are using this. I'm thinking about the consistency of reported data between companies when it comes to their CDP reports in order to enable comparability for investors. How is CDP tackling this challenge of one report maybe being slightly different to another and, and how that impacts how investors sort of take the data? Yeah, thanks. I think from a CDP's perspective, is is uh, kind of simple. Like the, we we have a questionnaire. We propose a questionnaire that is uh, the same questionnaires for all companies. Very uh, little variations actually happen to these questionnaires. Like in the sense, like for very small companies, we have a minimum version, but there is uh, there is the standard version, and so every company receives the same amount of of questions uh, that allows us to collect comparable data. Now, there are additional questions that are asked to, for, for specific sectors, but there is this main general uh, frame of questions for all the companies. And without this type of questionnaire, it's very difficult to compare. If, if a company, for example, is reporting only some type of information in the CSR report, so we need this, uh, and investors need this comparability. Um, very difficult to compare if, if within the CDP questionnaire, some questions, some questions are left unanswered as well. So the way CDP tackles this is that when we uh, share the data that is collected with investors, we also share with them a score. And this score has a double, uh, a double function. Um, it helps first assess the quality of disclosure and the comparability. So for the companies that uh, have responded to CDP, but that have the letter uh, D, uh, D minus D, it means that we don't have, we have a lot of blanks basically. And so that it would be difficult for an investors to, for, for investors to compare this data because of the data missing. And then on the, on the scoring level, then uh, when you have a better score, to, which is C, the letter C, then it means that uh, you have a more comprehensive data. Uh, but there are still uh, potentially still some incoherence or, or data, um, I would say, not, not very well explained. So it, it shows as well, it's a signal to investors that, yeah, you have uh, most of the question answers, but still some, some of the data is missing and sometimes you won't find some important information or it won't be detailed enough. And then the, the CDP scores, when it reaches the level of B or A, then uh, that's where we're really looking at uh, actions. We know we, we have the right information at the right place. It's coherent. And, and then we can really uh, look at the action that the company is taking and, and the mitigation actions, for example. So the score would be uh, for investors a way to assess whether there is that consistency or challenges and comparability, then comparability is possible or not. And I think just to add to what Jerome mentioned on the comparability piece and sort of the data gaps, right? Um, so one of the metrics or the themes where 
we see the most investor interest and we touched upon this was emissions. And it, it's still not best practice as we would like it to see emissions reporting. I believe almost 20% of the companies that reported to CDP over the last couple of years, consistently we see an emissions reporting gap you know, of 20% of those companies. And what, what we've done, of course, and what the market also takes recourse to is estimations in those cases. And CDP also has yet public methodology by means of which we're really looking to estimate scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions so that at least there is a starting point for investors to start evaluating or assessing companies and comparing them more effectively. And at the same time, our focus, of course, is that, you know, this should act as some kind of a motivation for companies to report and own their narrative rather than there being um, estimations in the market, of course. So. Yeah, you know, with uh, with our data teams and with our technical teams, and, and as as you'll see with other players in the market as well, that there are methodologies in place to estimate the data, to review the data, to sort of clean up some outliers, to make it more comparable. Uh, we're also doing similar work on emissions reduction targets data that companies are reporting on, um, and that's really a big piece of work that goes into building more analytical tools and products feed on you know, temperature ratings and science-based targets, et cetera. So do do want to, I guess, mention that, you know, we do continue to focus heavily on reporting and we encourage companies and we want them to report. But in cases of significant data gaps, there is a recourse to sort of estimations and methodologies as well. And, and to add, uh, actually, on what you said, Radhika, a very good point about the emission reduction targets. We, we spoke earlier about science-based targets. So, and, and let, let's bring this to, uh, let's bring the, the issue of consistency and comparability into targets. What we see is that a target is so diverse. When you look at target emission reduction targets disclosed by companies, they are so diverse. They're so hard to compare because, of course, there is the time horizon. Company can set a target, a net zero target for 2050 or a target for 2030 or target for 20, uh, 2025. It can be a, an intensity uh, target or an absolute uh, contraction target. It can take into account scope one and two or maybe also scope three. And so you have so various cases that if you don't actually ask all these questions and be very, and are very precise on what you ask companies and detail what target are, are these, what is the base year, what is the target year, the scopes, the horizon and so forth, it's very hard to compare targets. And we've experienced this because we launched recently the CDP temperature rating, which converts the targets disclosed by companies, their ambition, into temperature, a degrees in degrees Celsius, an indicator that, that tells you, okay, if they did achieve the, the uh, emission reduction that they intend to do, to what degree of warming are they aligned to by the end of the century? Are they aligned to a 2.5 uh, degree uh, by 2100 or lower or higher? And that is just based on their emissions. And we've noticed that we can do this with the CDP data because we ask all these details, nitty gritty details about the targets. But if we look at other sources of information, we would not be able to convert these targets into temperature indicator because it's just not detailed and precise enough. So we see a concrete here example of how comparability is important to assess the ambitions of company. And as we said earlier, the ambition of companies will be uh, super important in their actual emission reduction. That's fascinating. And I really enjoyed the point about how you can start estimating 
emissions where, where there are gaps. I guess it's testament to CDP's work that's been going on for almost 20 years to get to that point. And I guess it just brings into mind, and there's so many cool things that you both said there, and so much information that investors can use. To what extent is um, investor carbon literacy therefore needed if, get, if they've got all this information to hand? And how much more do you think investor carbon literacy needs to develop in order for us to, you know, I guess, to get to a sustainable future um, and ensure that all investing is done sustainably? Um, no, that's, that's a good question. Um, you know, we always say that um, investors or capital markets, it, it's not really a homogeneous category, right? There's a spectrum of ESG integration, um, carbon literacy, and we, we definitely see that in our day-to-day work that, you know, we, we work with our stakeholders in that sort of stewardship journey where they are and ultimately hope to work with them and support them with, with the data, with, with engagement tools, with, with research, methodology guidance, you know, all of that to really, yeah, take them on that journey, I guess. So having said that, I have to acknowledge again, the role of the DCFD in mainstreaming climate disclosures, you know, bringing climate integration into the boardrooms in a more meaningful manner, which is um, definitely translated into wider, wider investor awareness on this issue and, you know, moving them or motivating them to actually start taking tangible actions on this. Of course, you know, the 2020 ongoing global pandemic has also further cemented the sustainability focus. Um, And we're seeing that be it, and honestly, you know, be it public equities, be it banks, be it private equity, be it alternatives, uh, you know, the range of asset classes are now sitting up and starting to pay attention and trying to incorporate and understand, uh, understand and incorporate rather climate change or this climate literacy piece in the best way that they can. So I think two things which in my mind will be crucial to leveraging this momentum because you know there's a lot of interest um, in parallel. There's also a lot of, I would say, um, noise. There's a lot of developments in the market and for the investors to be able to navigate this piece and to actually take meaningful action. I think one key thing is that, that there is a lot of useful literature now in the market. You know, there is, we mentioned PCAFs, and the portfolio impact assessment methodologies, uh, the science-based targets for financial institutions and the supporting complementary methodologies that they have to guide investors to start thinking about their carbon impact uh, in a more meaningful manner. Uh, We're seeing a lot of commitments come out recently. We spoke about net zero. uh, And then there is, of course, you know, the net zero asset managers alliance and others that that are really, you know, trying to sort of motivate and build a lot of um, action points that investors can take. So one would be that Again, you know, depending upon where the investor sits, there's always a line of commitment or a line of action that they can start on. Now, be it, be it signing up to CDP, becoming a signatory, indicating that endorsement of public disclosure, uh, engaging with companies, uh, and then moving on to sort of, you know, more, more advanced steps of portfolio accounting and then science-based targets and so on. However, you know, coming back to sort of what has been our core theme, I think is crucial to all of this is data availability. So high quality and relevant information will be the fundamental basis for any meaningful action um, that that our sort of, you know, financial sector players can take. So I, I, you know, for me, it comes down to that piece that the data needs to be, continue to be more robust and company and investors rather need to leverage all of this existing science and methodological guidance to really take that first step and, and start integrating the climate piece more actively. I'm, I'm sure, Jerome, is there something you know, more specific you'd like to add to that? 
I really like what you said. I, I would just add that, um, I mean, it's it's a journey, right? So as, uh, as Radhika said, and so from my perspective, there's a need to not only, I mean, take into account the different aspects of sustainability. So to give you an example, when you when we hear that you know, green technologies will help reduce emission, for example, well, if you only look at a climate slash carbon perspective, you might think, okay, this, uh, this seems like a, a great solution. But when you realize that a lot of uh, green technologies actually rely on minerals that, need, that requires mining and sometimes and pretty often actually are linked to deforestation, then you understand that you actually cannot just look at one aspect. You need to take the sustainability theme as a whole. And I think that um, we all get more and more mature on this topic so that we can more and more take into account adverse impacts that we had not necessarily thought of initially. And so I think investors as well, their the competences grow and, and more and more of these complex issues can be understood uh, so that it diminishes the, I would say, the, the pressure on our environment. So... Uh, Improvements on that, well, I think regulation is also an important piece uh, to come to work to maybe bring the attention of, of companies and investors to some points that they may not have considered before. And um, yeah, I'm thinking, for example, the sustainability uh, financial disclosure regulation in Europe that uh, will push investors to disclose on some metrics that they may not have disclosed before. Great, thank you very much. Some fascinating points there. I think we're getting towards the end of the podcast. And at IB Green Minds, we like to ask a few closing questions to our guests each week. So if you don't mind, I'll jump through onto those. What advice would you give to someone who is considering starting out a career which incorporates sustainability? I will come back to what I said in my introduction. Having that multidisciplinary lens really enriches the interpretation of data, of issues, and then the ultimate application of solutions. So I, I think that that's crucial. Um, and the second bit is adaptability. You know, just, just over the course of what we just, um, the last point that we discussed, you know, the science is evolving, um, the actions that the stakeholders take is evolving. Sustainability is not set in stone and the ability to pivot, uh, learn, and relearn, I think is really vital. Um, and I don't mean to say, you know, succeeding, but really succeeding from an impact, you know, from an impact perspective as well. So those two factors to me would be, these are my recommendations to folks who want to start working in the field. Yes, and on myself, uh, on my side, I would say that there's an initial question you need to ask yourself is, uh, how do you want to focus on sustainability? What impact do you wish to have? Do you wish to focus on actually, I don't know, the finance for projects that, that are bringing solutions like green solutions and there or, or social solutions? So there it's more impact finance where you can select projects or uh, get finances to projects that are fully dedicated to um, bringing a social solution or green solution. Or do you wish to participate in getting the global economy to transition? And that means also working with current polluters and get them to transition. So what is, what is your vision of sustainability? I think is a key question to, to ask yourself when you want to start a career in, in, uh, in sustainable finance. 
Right. Thank you. Definitely some food for thought there for all of our listeners. And the final question is, if listeners were to take away one key message from our conversation today, what would you like it to be? So I thought a lot about this and I wasn't able to articulate a key message. Uh, but I, I would say that, you know, sustainability is becoming mainstream. And the next decade is really crucial. And the actions that are that we take now, uh, whether it's from a corporate perspective, whether it's the capital markets, whether it's from a regulatory perspective, will really determine the state of our world by the middle of the century, by the end of the century. So, you know, we, we need strong motivated players in this space. So yeah, I, th- I think the time is right. So please, please join the bandwagon. We, we, can, we, we, we need all the, all the resources we can get. And my key message would be uh, get more get more data, help us get more data from companies, get more transparency. Transparency is key. And of course, um, let's get more companies, investors to take action and set emission reduction targets. Uh, we need more reduction. We need to act. <laughs> as, as in our line of work, uh, we end with a call to action. So, um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I think you've... Um, clearly articulated the, the need for or the, the urgent need for action now um so yeah that that's that's a very clear message and i guess all that's left for me to do now is say thank you both for your time and the fascinating conversation that we've had today yeah thanks very much thank you, uh, thanks. definitely enjoyed being a part of this yeah thank you very much thank you as well radika and, and thank you alex um and thanks to all the students who, who listened.